0: When my two sons were very young, my wife and I were invited for a weekend with some friends who'd just got married. And just before we set off to drive there, one of the friends rang me up and said, look, on Sunday morning, a woman's going to come round and give us a wedding present. She's going to take some photographs of us. Would you mind talking to her husband for an hour while she does so? So yes, I say, of course. And we pile the boys into the back of the car and off we go. It turns out to be a great weekend. And as Sunday comes round, the hour of the photograph gets closer. So my wife takes the boys off for a walk. And my friend, ever so casually, says, You might have come across the husband of this photographer, actually. He's called Charles Handy. Well, yes, of course I'd come across him, by reputation anyway. I had some of his books in my bookshelf. He was one of the most stimulating and influential thinkers on organisational behaviour and management in the world. Still is now, come to that. So the hour comes, and Charles Handy's wife is taking photographs of my friends, and my wife and the boys have gone off for a walk, and so it's just Charles Handy and me, at the beginning of an hour together sitting in the living room. And so I think to myself, well, okay, I have two possible strategies here. One is to be very English and pretend I don't really know that he's famous and instead talk about cricket and the weather, respect the man's space. And plan B, the second option is to say, look, I've got an hour on my own with Charles bloody Handy. Make the most of it for God's sake. So I chose plan B. I explained to him that my first book had just come out and I was just starting out on my own and asked him, as someone who was considerably further down that road than me, and obviously operating at a rather higher altitude, what advice he'd have for someone just starting out. And he was wonderful. Yes, he said, I have got three bits of advice for you based on my own experience. The first, he said, is if you're gonna write books, basically write the same book over and over again. Change maybe 10 or 20% of it each time. People will only buy every third or fourth book, so by the time they buy your next book, most of it will have changed. I don't think that's actually what he's done, by the way. That's a whole other conversation. The second bit of advice, he said, is never read anybody else's stuff. It drives you mad. You spend all your time thinking, well, I can't write about that now because so-and-so has written about it. And the third bit of advice is divide all the work you do into the things you do for fun and the things you do for money and be very clear about which is which and make sure you keep the balance right. They're all really good bits of advice, but I found the second of those particularly useful. Never read anybody else's stuff. It drives you mad. With very few exceptions, really big data-led developments in understanding how marketing and communications work, I don't read much of what others in my area write about, and I really don't go to conferences very much. In part because if I'm developing my thoughts or ideas for a new book or a new topic like this, I need to balance a really obsessive focus on the topic with being kind of lateral magpie and looking for examples from very different places. But of course, that lack of awareness, whilst peers work, does come with some disadvantages, because you can find yourself working on something that someone else has actually been working on, exploring, speaking about for ages. And that's the case with our next guest. Russell Davis has been thinking about what it means to be interesting for over 20 years, which to my embarrassment, I hadn't really clocked. But he's gonna talk to us today about that exploration. I've known Russell for a long time. He's widely acknowledged as one of the most stimulating thinkers in the world of brand and communications. He's been a strategist on some iconic work by great brands like Honda and Nike. He's been a marketing director at An Interesting Challenger. He's a fabulously entertaining public speaker. He's a long-time contributor to Wired magazine. He's written three books, the first of which is called Egg, Bacon, Chips and Beans, which is a celebration of everything he loves about the great British cafe. The second, Everything I Know About Life, I Learned From PowerPoint, And his new book is called Do Interesting, Notice, Share, Collect, which is part of the excellent Do Books series. And while much of what we've focused on in the previous episodes has been about how to make something interesting, our business, our topic, our performance, in Do Interesting, Russell starts from a different place. How do we make our world more interesting so that we can make the magic more probable, in Russell's words, when we need to? Here's Russell. Russell, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. And listen, you, you've been doing Interesting a while now. Tell oh, us in a couple of minutes about the history of your relationship with Interesting.
1: Okay. So in in the late 90s, I was working as an advertising planner at an advertising agency in Portland, Oregon, called Widening Kennedy. There were two big accounts in the agency. There was Nike, which was brilliant and cool and did the best ads in the world. And there was Microsoft, which didn't do their best ads in the world. And so I worked on Microsoft. And we were constantly being taxed within the agency of like doing better work. So we spent a long time trying to work out what it was about what Nike were doing with advertising that made it better than, than what we were doing elsewhere and, and better than everyone else because I don't think they really thought about it very much. And the thing that became clear is that they were simply choosing to make things that were more worth watching than anything else you could conceivably be watching at the time. Right. They weren't thinking about advertising strategy or whatever. They were just trying to make interesting things. And one of the people I worked with was another advertising planner called Jeffrey Jackson, who'd worked in San Francisco previously. And he quoted a famous old 60s ad man called Howard Gossage, who said at one point, people don't read ads, they read what's interesting, and sometimes that's an ad. And that summed up everything. And Jeffrey and I started on a sort of quixotic project to work out what made things interesting and to think about that and to work out how to apply that commercially, which he has been much more dedicated and successful at doing than I've been. Um, and was this just about
0: I, ads at the time?
1: It was to begin with, yeah. Yeah. We had a tradition at Widen of going to the University of Oregon and teaching at the advertising. Course there for the ad students, and normally it was creatives who would go and do that, and they could teach them how to write or art direct. And I was asked to go and do it, and I realised as a strategist I had no useful transferable skills. (laughs) So I thought, well, what can I teach them? And I thought, well, really, what I have sort of learned, I characterised it as how to be interesting. I don't think that's really what it was, but that was the shorthand. Yeah. And I thought, can I do it in a sort of didactic? just follow these instructions and it will work kind of way. So I did that. It went quite well. I wrote it up as a blog post. It was by this stage, like the early 2000s. So there weren't many blog posts. So it became one of the popular ones. And I became minorly known for having written it. And interestingness just became a thing that people knew I was interested in. And I found out to myself that I was interested in. It was the early days of what would become social media, so sites like Flickr, were starting to build algorithms around the idea of interestingness. Really? Um, Yeah, they literally called it interestingness. What they prototyped there turned into the things that Twitter subsequently used to destroy the world.
0: But that kind of interest graph was a thing. So just on that, so so what kind of things were they tracking as being interesting on Flickr? What did the algorithm look for? Things like
1: uh, was something interacted with a lot, I mean, really straightforward things. I see.
0: Okay. Engagement um, effectively in some form. E- yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Which it turns out, as TikTok has proved, is it's not very sophisticated. If you look at something for a time, that suggests you're interested in it.
0: Uh, uh.
1: you know, And they show you more of the things that you look at.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's sort of similar. Um, but there hadn't really been a thing that had been possible with media before and, and was starting to become so. And then just... It fed on itself, so I ended up registering the Twitter account at Interesting, which for a small period of time was worth quite a lot of money and now <laughs> isn't. You know, um, I mean, I never really did anything with it. I started a conference of my own, couldn't think of a name for it, so I thought I'd, I'll call it Interesting. And then because I've noticed that I'm interested in interestingness, I sort of pay attention to things that relate to that. Yep. Um, and then of late- Someone asked me to write a book and I thought, well, I'll write it about interestingness because I've got a lot of
0: material. Great. Basically. Okay. So so we'll come on to the book in a second, but just so in yeah. writing it down, was the book essentially a kind of codification of lots of things you already had codified or actually was it kind of relatively kind of loosely formed in your mind and actually the act of writing it down made it more formal and more structured?
1: I mean, more the latter, definitely. And, and more a case of I realized whenever I write anything, I realized that I have no idea what I thought. <laughs> um, and I either discover what I think through conversation or being forced to write a book. And so actually, I realized I'm not interested in being interesting. I'm interested in how you make the world more interesting. And that all the shorthands I've been using were actually rather unhelpful. So, uh, for instance, I, a couple of times did a sort of workshop on how to be interesting. And I realized that what I always said in the first two minutes were, this isn't really about be- uh, how to be interesting. It's about something else. <laughs> and that I kind of finally got the message to myself that that's what I'm talking about.
0: So yeah. before we get into the themes of your book, you make an interesting distinction about the difference between doing interesting and being interesting. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I mean, like all good ideas, it's partly just convenience. It's sort of rhetorical convenience in that it's a series of books called Do Something. And I wanted to call it Do Interesting because that just seemed slightly disconcerting and, and interesting, but also because I think there's a version of how to be interesting That sort of leans into how to have charisma which is a bit it's too much like a pickup artist it's too sort of scummy and and like how to fake personality and that's sort of not really what I wanted to talk about and I also wanted to make it I wanted to make it pretty instructional I wanted to make it like do these things and things will get better you know in some small way along some small axis rather than a sort of an analysis or a some people are interesting, this is what they're like, kind of thing. I want to be like, here's some instructions. Try these things. Right.
0: Okay. Well then the other the other interesting distinction you make is between it's not about making something interesting or making yourself interesting to your point. It's about making the world interesting. Tell us a bit about that.
1: One of the things I mentioned in the book is there was an interview in the New Yorker with a singer who talked about a game that she used to play in the car when she was young, when bored, is that she would pick something in the distance, like a bunch of trees. She would pick an individual tree and focus on it and pay close attention to that tree and make it interesting by studying it and regarding it and paying attention to it. That, to me, is kind of the essence of the trick, is it's not trying to get the world to pay attention to you. It's it's you paying attention to it and that paying attention to anything makes it more interesting. And that's actually sort of what it means. And similarly, in writing the book, I interviewed a chap called Tom Whitwell, who has had a similar sort of career to me, sort of creative industries, a bit of a dabbler, really interesting person, who said the best people are always the ones who want to work on the boring categories, because they know that the boring categories are the interesting ones. Right. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've worked on things like Nike and Apple and, you know, like what are supposed to be interesting things. They're not interesting. It's like energy and property. It's like things that insurance, like they apparently dull things are the really interesting things. I just think that holds in lots of places.
0: Well, let's come back later on. I think that's a that's a fascinating idea. But let's stick with the idea of, you know, paying attention to something makes it more interesting. Because the first of your three themes is noticing and noticing more. And you make the point that actually, whether we think we are or not, we're already good at this, even if we haven't realised it yet. So tell us a bit more about that.
1: So we do have intuition and often we don't notice it. But if you come into a room, sometimes you can just tell that you are being talked about and you don't know how you know that. Or within one word of hearing a telephone call, you know whether it's going to be bad news like the mind is equipped with sort of noticing skills that we don't know that we have. There's an element of that. And then there's a term, my French accent is terrible, which is like deformation Mm professionnelle, which is the things that you know because of your job. And everyone looks at the world slightly differently because of who they are, how they grew up, what their job is, all that kind of thing. And A lot of what I tried to do with the book, and this didn't really work, it didn't find its way into the book so much, is I I tried to interview lots of people and say, what do you know about the world or notice about the world that other people don't notice? And there's a little hint of it where one of my co-writers, her mum is a radiologist and is obsessed with symmetry because radiologists are really interested in symmetry and are trained to notice symmetry. And so she finds unsymmetrical things in the world difficult. I think there's a version of that for whoever you are. And if you just notice it and realize it's a tiny superpower, that's kind of potentially really useful.
0: So if we're both looking at the same thing and spending a lot of time noticing it, actually we will just inherently notice it in different ways and that will give us different and more interesting perspective because we have that individuality in it. Yes.
1: I think there's something about if you notice that about yourself, if you know what it is that you find interesting and what you see, that amplifies that effect.
0: And, um, and I guess your point is, and you gradually start to notice that you're noticing it in ways different from other people. You're right. So it becomes a virtuous circle from that point of view.
1: Yeah. And then you also realize that, I mean, it helps that you then go, okay, they're seeing something I'm not. What is it that they're seeing that's useful and interesting as well? Yes. You know?
0: Yes. And talk a little bit about pebbles and diamonds. Oh, so one of
1: the, you'll know this yourself, towards the end of the book of, of writing a book, someone says, but what is it all about? What do you actually mean? And you also have to write that copy for the back, you know? So I ended up writing something like, don't hunt for diamonds. It is get fascinated by pebbles. It's, it's like, don't look for interesting things, make things interesting. Pay attention to what's around you rather than waiting for a magical gift of creativity or ideas or inspiration.
0: So I'm really interested in this idea of it almost being a practice, to use that slightly old-fashioned word that one brings into one's daily life. But let's come on to that. So noticing more is the first part of it, and then collecting more. So you're noticing these various things. What does it mean to collect your noticings? Just tell us about how you do that and what you mean by it in your own life.
1: Well, I have lots of half-hearted collections in the sort of traditional way that people do. But I also I write a lot of notes and that classic thing of, I write a lot down, I never reread any of it.
0: Never? Really? Not really, no. Not even when you've got a book that you think, ah, I need to fill in page 55 and I've got a big hole on 66.
1: Not really. It's that that used to be on the, or maybe still is on the cover of the Field Notes brand is like, I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Yeah. But I blog a lot and have done for more than 20 years now. So I've got a searchable personal archive of stuff that I've thought so there's that I have scrapbooks and and I notice what it is that I notice I guess that over the years and actually most of it most of that stuff is now in PowerPoint decks which I know we'll come to later but you know I've got I've got a PowerPoint deck that's probably 15 years old which is all the stuff you know, it's it's like a commonplace book. It's a collection of things that work or that might be interesting or that will come in handy. Or I never have to start a presentation from scratch. I can always just assemble a presentation out of things that I've previously found.
0: Yeah, I do it in Word, funnily enough. I don't know why I have very, very long Word documents that have no narrative flow at all. They are just parkings, effectively, of things, huge parking lots, things that I want to come back to later on.
1: And there's a, a writer called Stephen Johnson who who does that and calls it a spark file. And his practice, which there's a reason he's a professional writer, is he rereads it every six months. And just to go, okay, actually, that idea now connects to that idea. And this thing, which I thought about four years ago, is now suddenly possible. And it's just that thing of paying attention to to what you paid attention to previously. And there's versions of that. Again, one of the things I tried to avoid with the book is getting too sort of therapeutic or meditative, but it's got like morning pages is a practice of writing daily notes, which a lot of people find very helpful and which I did. And it's sort of
0: a version of that too. It's just getting stuff on paper helps a lot. And so the value of collecting here over and above that writing is there is a sense of sort of grouping of things and kind of finding where your energy is, I suppose, and must be looking for some degree of interconnection between some of these things or commonalities.
1: Yes, I think so. And again, the value of things like scrapbooks is the juxtaposition or that you subsequently go back and leaf through and go, "Oh, that connects to that." And I started this for instance because I was around old school advertising creatives who all have massive scrapbooks and they paste stuff into the scrapbooks, and if you come to them with a brief, I think this is a huge misconception about ideas. If you if you come to them with a brief, they don't sit and have an idea they look through the interesting things they've previously connected and attempt to fit them to the brief we never talk about that like we don't say you brief us and we'll try and fit an idea that we've already had to your brief but that's actually how it works and i think that's how a lot of creative endeavor works is there's this stuff floating around in your head and ideally also in other places and then you use that to solve the problem that's in front of you you don't just sort of sit abstractly and conjure an idea from nowhere. It comes from all the things you've already collected. And if some of that stuff is physical or virtual or outside of your head, that helps.
0: Well, it's really interesting you should say that because one of the previous guests was a guy called Norman Stiles, who's the head writer on Sesame Street. And he talked about exactly that same process. So in Sesame Street, they had this thing called the Statement of Instructional Goals. So these are the things you need to teach the kids, preschoolers, you know, enumeration, that kind of stuff. And then they, as entertainers, had to kind of come up with scenes that dramatize that. We said, in practice, it worked the other way around. So you'd come up with an idea like, hmm, what if Elmo was frightened of clowns? That's a funny idea. What could we do with that? Well, we could teach body parts, right? Because the clowns got sort of funny noses. in it. So it was, it was exactly how you're saying that. I think it's a really interesting flip of that kind of thought. And, you know, none the worse for that, right? Because you're focusing on... His point was, as yours point is, you need a big, really interesting idea. That's the main thing. If you don't have that, there's no point in saying anything, frankly.
1: And again, I think that's how, back to the start of the conversation, the thing that Nike and people who are good at ads do, and that we don't really tell people is what's happening, is they start with something interesting and then try and make it commercially effective. And that's very difficult. But it's more effective than starting with something you think is going to be commercially effective and then trying to make it interesting, because the interestingness bit is harder. So you start with the main problem there, and very often, if you you're starting with a thing you already know has got something interesting about it, that's a good place to start. And the micro version of that is, you know, if asked to write a presentation about something, I have like a collection of default ideas that I might start with. And you go, okay, well that problem fits oh there's that thing I saw the other day that fits with that problem. You know, and I can make it work. And then you go, okay, well I've started now, I'm off. And I juxtapose that with another thing. I've got 50% of the presentation now. So
0: does this only work if you're a collector on a relatively large scale?
1: I don't know. I've certainly found it's got easier. Like the more stuff you have in your hopper The better it is but i also think it's one of those things where although i think it's relatively straightforward and easy to do most people don't do it so even if you get somewhere you know even if you've got something it helps um i think most people don't do it because it's it seems to people like it's too easy it seems like it couldn't be this simple to just make sure you notice things write the odd thing down keep them in a file
0: It's like, that can't be how you have a successful career, but it it is. But there's also a time commitment to it, isn't there? That you're creating the space and the time to do that because you understand the value of it. And you sort of need to start doing it and start to appreciate the value of it to start to commit to creating the time around it, really, I would imagine.
1: Yes, I think so. But it's two minutes a day. Okay. Okay. You know, it's not, I'm not a librarian, (laughs) you know, it's and it's taking screenshots, and there are simple tricks that make things easier. So every time I get a new computer, I set the screenshot folder to be in Dropbox so that I've got years of screenshots. And if I see something interesting, I I screenshot it and then that's it. And then every now and then I'll be like, "Oh, what was that thing?" and you know, you go through them all and you also find all the you know, the screenshots of energy bills because you wanted to complain about something. But eventually you find the thing and you also find three other things which actually will turn out to be useful as well. Yes.
0: I really like those sort of simple ways of doing it. One of the points you make in collecting more is to make a virtue of your peculiarities. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that means and what it's meant for you. What are your peculiarities as an instance of that and have you made a virtue out of them?
1: Well, that comes from a, a quote by Ursula K. Le Guin. One of her characters says that in one of her novels. Something like, by the time you're 20, you should have, you know, you should learn to have made a, a virtue of your peculiarities. I think it particularly holds true in the kind of work maybe we do and in, in related industries where actually, most of the time, you're not, there's not an obviously wrong answer. If you're being asked to do something, Like, have an idea, come up with a strategy, you know, do a presentation. It's very unlikely that anyone's going to do something completely wrong or demonstrably wrong. It's just going to be different versions of right. So, it, you know, there will be lots of ways to execute that. And so, it may as well be the one that comes from you. It may as well be the answer that's your answer that's peculiar to you because you're going to deliver it with more conviction. It's going to be more based in who you are. It's going to hopefully be more interesting because it's more individual and more human mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So again, I think one of the things you learn as a strategist or a persuader or you know any of those kind of roles is that it's not about being right. It's about being more you. It's like there's a Dolly Parton quote of like, find out who you are and do it on purpose. And it's that. That's, what's, that's what you're trying to do. And noticing and collecting are ways of finding out who you are and doing it on purpose. It's like, these are the things I'm interested in. And I mean, when we get to the sharing section, one of the things is if you share that and declare that, more of those things find their way to you. It's not like manifesting in the universe. It's people kind of go, oh, you're interested in that. I saw that the other day. Here's an example and they send it to you.
0: So before we move on to it, just a couple of how you've brought your peculiarities into something that you've done.
1: I saw a sign. I can't remember what station it's at. Maybe Embankment? Years ago. And I I presume it's still there on the underground, on the platform. It said, front of train, less crowded. And I just thought, that's me. I like being at the front of the train because it's less crowded. So I enjoy getting to things first. I, I enjoy learning about technologies and playing with them. Not Before the technologists do, but before the average person who's not a technologist does. So that's one of my habits, and that's been true for 20 years. I'm interested in where technologies meet society, and that's been a lot of my career. I'm interested in interestingness, so that's been a lot of
0: it. I'm interested in, I mean, PowerPoint. (laughs) Yes, we're going to come on to that. I'm really interested in your interest in PowerPoint, so we'll come on to that.
1: Um. And I mean, and I have minor obsessions. Like I spent a long time being fascinated by Amazon, for instance. I just thought that's an interesting phenomenon. And I just pay extra attention. Uh You know, that just that headlines cross your screen. And if it's an Amazon one, I'm likely to click on it. And it just means I know more about that. And then if I am asked to work on a retail thing, I'm slightly more informed about Amazon. Or if I'm asked to work on something that's completely not a retail thing, I can use an Amazon example. I have minor areas of light expertise. I think that's a useful thing to have.
0: Well, I think I, I you and I shared a conference sort of platform at one point on a sort of panel when you were in the middle of your Amazon phase, I think, and you were talking about how right. Amazon was going to make all the biscuits in the world very shortly. So it was just a fantastically (laughs) impassioned and interesting perspective on how Amazon was going to take over the world. I I wasn't wrong. (laughs) Let's talk about sharing. So noticing more, collecting more, share more. So, I mean, within the notion of sharing, you talk about conversation and exchange. So Mm -mm. tell us a little bit more about why that's so important in doing interesting. So you could say, well, look, I've noticed a lot. I've collected some stuff. I don't really need to kind of chat with others and exchange it because I can now just apply this thing. But you're saying no, no, no. There is another bit which is the sharing of it. Tell me about conversation and exchange and when that matters.
1: I think it would be perfectly valid to not do that bit. It's rewarding in itself to you to do those things. And and I do some things and the things that I don't share. But. The book is also intended to be of some use to people who have these kinds of jobs, where you are supposed to do presentations or write emails or come up with ideas or whatever. And being practised at sharing ideas is a useful thing to do. And this is a way of practising that. It's probably the most personal bit in that it reflects how I am, I think. Like, if left alone in a room, I don't have any thoughts, I don't think.
0: I don't believe that for a second, Russell. (laughs) <laughs> Something would have interested you, and you'd be starting to collect it in some kind of way. Short. Sure, I mean,
1: I think that yeah, that's probably true. But I don't think I'm thinking. I think in conversation.
0: I think okay. Right.
1: Um, that again, someone I interviewed in the book describes it as I saw this and thought of you. So one of my habits is I see things and go, I know who'd like that, <laughs> and I send it to them. Yeah. And so I've got a sort of distributed, interesting network. Like I, I've got. A pile of envelopes with people's names on for when I see them next time. I've got some cuttings in it that I will give them, and I imagine people think it's the most irritating and annoying (laughs) thing in the world. But you know, in my head, I've got models of what other people are interested in, and I go, "Oh, they'll like that." And it's obviously a like desperate plea for them to be my friend, but or an act of generosity of spirit and thought, and possibly both. But I find that a good way of thinking, a good way of distributing thought amongst Uh, people. uh. And again, the book is deliberately not just written by me. It's written by a lot of people, which, I mean, obviously is easier, but also I think makes it more interesting. There's more voices in it than just mine. It was particularly interesting in the context of a book because the publishing industry hates that. You know, they do not like the idea of there being lots of people writing a book, even though that's the reality of almost every book is it's written by lots of people.
0: Yeah, because you need one name on the cover, right? Or two names, but yeah. you can't have yeah. Russell Davis and 14 other people.
1: And I I did argue quite hard to, to get more names on the cover and, and it wasn't allowed. And I can see sort of why that is. And again, my professional experience is all the best things I've ever been involved with. have had multiple people involved in the idea. I do think that makes life more interesting. Mm-hmm. You get better and more interesting ideas. And if you study ideas and how they happen... They're very rarely the creation of a single person. And we may as well acknowledge that and embrace that and therefore get good at it. I guess the other bit is there's a version of the sort of interestingness cliche, which is the sort of tedious recitation of facts. You know, it's like, oh, very. here's an interesting thing. Here's an interesting thing. And you have to learn. It's not just about knowing interesting things and collecting them. It's also knowing how to share them. Because if you don't know how to do that in such a way that you don't bore people, then what's the point, you know? So I think there's some art and artistry to that too.
0: That's fascinating. So how are you using AI and where does AI fit into your notice more, collect more, share more? Well, there's a version of collect
1: more, which which I have flirted with, which is an obsession with sort of using technology tools to build a personal sort of a personal database. So I'm periodically seduced by a new bit of software that captures everything I'm interested in and indexes it in interesting ways and surfaces it to me when I want to. And versions of that have been invented for the last 500 years and more so recently in software, obviously. And there will be an AI tool, I suspect that will do that pretty well. At the moment, there's some AI tools that do that horribly. And there is a version of that, for instance, that just captures everything you say and indexes it and everything you see and, and indexes it and will play it back to you. I can imagine something like that will be useful to some people. I don't think it's for me. I think there's something about the act of attention and the serendipity of losing some things and finding others, which I think will be useful. I don't, I don't think interestingness is, is an exercise in efficiency.
0: No, but I mean, for instance, your point about capture is interesting, isn't it? So you're saying earlier on that you think through conversations. Can you foresee a situation where with people obviously you know and trust and know and trust you, you would be capturing conversations and it would just be indexing and sort of sorting out the themes that you recognized, you know, you had most energy and emotion around in your voice, for instance. Can you foresee a situation where you're kind of collecting in that kind of way?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I can I can sort of see that, but I also think that's what our brains do already, you know, and that after I've had a conversation, there will be bits of it that stick and that they're already stuck in my brain and they're already, you know, it's that thing of, a, we're, this will get really good when we've basically built a map that's the same size as the world. Like, what, why bother? But there is something there. It feels like there is some tool there, or even just if I could... I have played with, for instance, being able to search my blog by just asking questions of a chatbot. And again, these tools are out there, a version of your sort of personal your personal corporate archive, as it were, that no one has ever really found ways of, of indexing that or accessing that satisfactorily. I can imagine large language models would, would do that. But I think it's um it's a convenience. It's not a revolution. I, I suspect. One of the things that LLMs particularly do is they, I mean, they don't think, but the thing that looks like thinking is really different to the way we do it. So it forces you to introspect and and sort of makes you examine, okay, what am I doing when I'm doing this? And because the way they do it is so different.
0: And I guess just the act of asking prompts in different ways forces you to perhaps... Just approach things in a slightly different way than you might might otherwise do. So perhaps sort of then automatically reorders the relationship between things in your mind as a result.
1: One of the books I mentioned in the book on I think it's called On Looking. Um, Andrea Horowitz, I want to say, she talks about how going on holiday is a way of like noticing the world again. You see things slightly differently because you're you're in a slightly different city, but you're still looking at buses and cafes and you know, but you see them in a in a different way. I could imagine like looking at the world through sort of AI eyes doing something similar. It's a bit like
0: you see your world, but slightly like you're on holiday, yeah. you know. Yeah. Is this a way of working or a way of living for you? I mean, I'm just struck that in the book, you know, you reference your wife who clearly is you know, a very interesting thinker in her own right. There's what I, I'm guessing. Um, uh, Arthur Davis is your son. So a quote from him. Is that. So I mean, mm-hmm. is this a way of living or is it a way of working for
1: you? I'm not sure I could draw a distinction between the two. And I know I'm lucky and unlucky in that, but I've managed to turn a lot of my work into my
0: life and, and a bit of my life into my work. But there's a richness in your personal life that comes from this, obviously, and not simply your professional
1: life. Yes. And also because I think You know, I've got a lot of privilege and part of that has been I've been able to be myself at work and been able to bring personal interests and personal life and personal views and thoughts and ideas into my work.
0: And has that that
1: always been the case or has
0: that kind of grown?
1: I think that's grown, yeah. Again, I think I've had the privilege that, that my views and habits and the... You know, fact that I'm a straight white man are tend to be acceptable views inside a corporation. So I'm probably more allowed to be myself than other people are. But you know, there's probably been more presentations about the East Midlands than there might otherwise have been (laughs) in you know corporate
0: life. Um, Um, Let's let's just stick with that for a bit. We'll come back to just the book, and indeed one of your other books in a second, but. I would imagine that one of the reasons you've been brought into an organization, not necessarily someone like Nike, but some of the other organizations you work with, is, is to sort of be a force of interesting and stimulation in it. What's your advice about how to do that well? Because it's very easy to do it badly, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Um, under promise. Under promise. <laughs> <laughs> so I often end up with the slot that might... Or used to I don't do it so much anymore, but but I used to end up with the slot at a conference or a corporate retreat or whatever where they might put an inspiring speaker. And I've always tried to make it very clear that I am not an inspiring speaker. But you are though. I've seen you speak. You're great. Yeah, I mean I think I'm all right, but I'm not inspiring. I'm possibly interesting. Okay. Um okay. and I, I think that's a useful distinction. There are some people who are inspiring, Pep Guardiola, but I don't think I've ever been at a work event where someone has been inspiring. you know they have been helpful or, or useful or directional or interesting or I don't know. I think when the it's that inflation of language is just not just not helpful, and then you end up with speakers who look like someone who's inspiring) <laughs>
0: I'm inspiring haircuts, yeah, yeah, but but they're not, you know, yeah. um,
1: partly because it's a very high bar um, to imagine that. So, I think when I've done a successful presentation, it's because I've done a lot of work and I've tried to get. Well, all I want to do is is spend twenty minutes showing you something like better than staring at the wall. Uh-huh. You know, it's like worth your time. I think you have to honour an audience with something that's worth their time. But that's not my personality. It's not the fact that I'm there that's worth your time. It's the fact that I've done some work and found some stuff and I'm showing it to you. I see. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's okay. partly about me. Obviously, I'm I'm not that sort of um, modest. But it's about the work that I've done and the effort that I've made. It's not just showing up
0: and being inspiring. So let's come back to your friends. I mean, clearly you know as you say in a sense the book is co-written by them they're an enormously important part of your life as well as your working life do you make a practice of filtering out the uninteresting friends i mean do you have any uninteresting friends or all they are interesting is, is this a i remember talking to faris yakob about something similar earlier in the year and his his whole point is you are what you eat do do you have dull friends
1: yes they're all dull <laughs> um Yeah, because everyone is in some ways, everyone is dull along some axes and and interesting along others, I think. And so one of the things that lockdown made me realize, you know, and the whole experience is how much I enjoy colleagues. And my wife said something absolutely brilliant, which is the thing that she missed about work was colleagues, Uh. which the thing of going to work and the being some people there who you didn't have to arrange for them to be there. They're just, they're just there you know, and you know them quite well. You don't have to catch up from, you, don't have to, you know, you know what they did yesterday. You know that some of them like football and some of them have got children and, and you can just have a sort of low key, but sometimes heightened relationship with those people. And you don't have to like them. You don't have to dislike them. And I think those relationships are tremendously powerful. Um, and useful and interesting. And some of them turn into your friends and some of them don't. And some of those friends I have jokes with is we won't call each other friends. We will only describe each other as former colleagues. Right. Um, because that's sort of the essence of the relationship. And former colleague is a really nice relationship to have. It's a precious someone. thing. Yeah. 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 And you've shared a lot, but you you don't have to declare yourself friends and friends are a pain as well. Like you have to arrange to meet up, and you know, all that kind of stuff. It's a pain, whereas colleagues are just there.
0: Well, also, presumably, former colleagues is something else you can collect. So I mean that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Itself,
1: yeah. and i've I've been very lucky. I've got a very good collection of former
0: colleagues. Fantastic. Russell, thank you. That was great. Pleasure. The strategic planning guru and author, John Steele, tells a great story about Jeff Goodby. For many years now, one of the finest copywriters in the world and co-founder of the iconic advertising agency in America, Goodby, Silverstein & Partners. In his early days as a young copywriter, Jeff Goodby worked at the West Coast office of the advertising agency Ogilvy & Mather. The founder, David Ogilvy, already a world-famous ad man, was scheduled to make the West Coast office a visit, and Goodby, as one of the agency's rising stars, was one of those chosen to meet him. While normally a very calm, collected individual, when Goodby was introduced to the industry legend, his composure entirely disappeared. Overtaken by a desire to impress the great man Goodby says, he began telling Ogilvy how hard he was working, and how the search for perfection led him to writing non stop during normal working hours, and often late into the evenings too. Ogilvy was apparently startled. Goodness, he said in reply to the young copywriter, I don't think you can write for ten hours a day and have it be any good. Maybe two or three hours a day at the most. The rest of the day should be devoted to making yourself interesting enough so that we might want to read your writing. The importance of giving time to preparing to be or make something interesting has been a key theme across the people we've heard from, hasn't it? It's clearly not that you are just interesting or not interesting, we are hearing. It takes even the best time and preparation. And we've seen a range of approaches here. For Addison, several years into his teaching career, even for a topic he's taught before, it's 30 minutes prep a lesson. For Gemma, a key part of the secret to a great performance is endless rehearsal and curation. And for Russell, It's actually less about getting ready for something in particular and more a way of putting yourself in a position to be ready to make anything more interesting. And that continual practice of noticing, collecting, sharing is a way of living, in effect, that makes life more interesting to you and puts you always in a position to make things more interesting to others. And over and above that simple, codified practice, three things struck me. The first was his flip of the idea of attention. It's not actually about you trying to get the world to pay more attention to you, he said. It's about you paying more attention to the world. And, as you do so, make a virtue of your peculiarities. If you do, you'll notice the world in a different way to anyone else. And that's a core part of what makes you more interesting. The second thing that struck me was his point that, if you want to have more interesting communications, the key is to start with the interesting idea, and then work out the right way to make it communicate what you need it to. And that's exactly what Norman Stiles said was her approach on creating scenes in Sesame Street as well, wasn't it? The most important thing today is to have an idea that's interesting enough to cut through and engage. That's very different to what I was taught when I started in advertising about the idea always following the strategy. No, that's not how it usually works if you really want to engage, say Norman and Russell. You have to have someone who's collected some really interesting ideas already, maybe you, and then work out how to use them to meet your communication or strategic goals. And the third thing I liked was this idea about making it easy. Spend two minutes a day capturing whatever you've noticed that day that was interesting. Set up your screen grabs to go into a folder in Dropbox marked interesting. Start filling up the hopper so it's ready when you need it. This has been Let's Make This More Interesting from Fish. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Ruth, my editor, and Ross, my producer. And in the next episode, we're going to do something different from the format so far. We're actually going to ask Russell to come back and do a masterclass on how to give great PowerPoint. Why? Because PowerPoint is the poster child of Dull and Russell is a master at it. Although we will also have the intriguing challenge of discussing a primarily visual medium through the constraints of the spoken word. Come back and see how we do.